opening with the reading of the final part of the first chapter. In our last reading, we had been going at the sutra number 40, from chapter number 1, through which Patanjali gave us a very interesting definition of Ajna Chakra, without actually mentioning the chakra, but mentioning it through its effects. And he said, so the yogin gets mastery over all objects, ranging from the smallest atom to the infinitely large. And as I have demonstrated in the commentary to that sutra, this has this can be read in two different ways, which both of them are pointing to the capacity to the arousing of Ajna Chakra. And then Patanjali goes in the Sutra number 41 towards defining, drawing the conclusions. Now he starts closing slowly, slowly the paragraph, the whole chapter about the forms of Samadhi. All this chapter called Samadhi Pada, the chapter on Samadhi, defined starting with what yoga is, arresting the movements of the mind, the five obstacles, the five forms of knowledge, how to stop that kind of movement of the mind, and all the things which followed after, and finishing recently with all those impurities of the mind, with those nine obstacles to the mind pacification, and their associate negative state. And he gave us a lot of suggestions of how to do these, in which he opened doors, or he authenticated, he justified, various branches of yoga, various separate methodologies of yoga, and out of which perhaps the most outstanding is the fact that he spoke about the mantra Aum as a proeminent means of meditation. And in the Sutra number 41, he brings back something from the beginning. He says, the mind of the wise reaches the Samapati, a state of complete absorption of the mind, which is free from vrittis, just as a polished crystal that takes the color of, of that on which it rests, be it knower, knowable, or the act of knowing. The first part of this longer sutra is bringing us identically back to the beginning of this chapter. In the beginning of this chapter it was said, if the mind focuses on Purusha, on the transcendent spirit, then it becomes transparent and immortal like that spirit. But for the rest of the mind, whatever it focuses upon, it assumes the color of that something, exactly as a transparent crystal when put on a red piece of cloth, looks reddish in all of its entirety, although the crystal is not red in itself. Therefore, because he used that comparison, he uses it again, calling our attention to the fact that, yes, all this time he has been speaking about the concentration of the mind on things which belong to Prakriti, to the manifested part of the universe. And only that he calls now the final uh, accomplishment under the name Samapati, Sanskrit is a language which is elastic enough to allow several names for the same concept because it defines it from different angles 
and most commentators agree on the fact that when Patanjali says Samapati, he means more or less Samadhi. If there would be minor differences that actually he insists here more on the feeling aspect or on this aspect or on that aspect, most commentators agree that that is not very important. And that is why, by reading it again with Samadhi, he says the mind of the wise reaches that Samadhi, Samapati, some people would go as far as calling it Samiyama, all these roots of the word Sam, Sama means equality, equalizing. So Samadhi, Samapati, Samiyama, they all speak about a certain equanimity. This equanimity has been called in so many ways in other traditions. Buddha calls it the middle path and the peace of nirvana. In Christian mysticism it has been called the dispassion of the mind. And others and others have called it in various ways until at the level of the folk knowledge, the Babas, the Sadhus of India have called it simply Shanti. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace. But it's not about socio-political peace, it's about the true inner peace, which is the peace of the spirit allied with the peace of the heart. And therefore you can say that Samapati is, and all in these names which start with Sama, Samapati, Sam Adhi, Sam Yama, they have some, they speak something about a very interiorized and peaceful state of mind. It is exactly as if when you meditate, and you feel that you are very centered, very calm, and there's like nothing can get into you and disturb that state of calmness and peace. That uh, is meant by going beyond these turbulent levels of the vital force, of the emotion, of the inferior mind, which kind of disturbs, disturbs, disturbs all the time. So, uh, he simply says, thus, the, exactly as a crystal uh, that takes the color of that on which it resides, the mind of the wise is free from vrittis. I remind again this concept of vrittis, the worlds of the mind. That's the whole yoga, the sutra number two. Yoga is the arresting of the vrittis of the mind. Therefore, the whole point is how to stop the vrittis. That's again an allusion to this peace, to this profound peace. And only that here he goes a little bit further in Sanskrit by saying the vrittis are off, the mind becomes identified but even, it is kind of calm, and it says the, a polished crystal that takes the color of that on which it rests, be it knower, knowable, or the act of knowing. This triad to divide the things in the one who knows, the one that is to be known, and the in-between, which means basically, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the subject, which is ultimately Atman, the self, and that is Purusha. I'm talking about the object, which is the differentiated world, the objective reality. And I'm talking about the environment in-between, called usually in Indian philosophical speculation, the knowledge which I get. It is the knower, I am the knower, but in the higher meaning... The known, the object, which is just any external object, and it means differentiation. And the knowledge, which means the in-between, this environment which connects me with the known. What is in-between? What is the knowledge? If I see, what makes it possible that I see? 
a certain energy, a certain tatva, a certain milieu, a certain environment. Therefore, we are talking actually about energy. That is why this is illustrated in the Kashmir Shaivas by saying the knower is Shiva, the self, the known is the object, it's Nara, the result, the objective world, and the in-between is Shakti, the energy. Shiva, Shakti, Nara, the three links of manifestation. Therefore, this link in three, and the Indians have been very, very inclined to classify everything in three, Rajas, Tamas, Sattva, Chit, Sat, Chitananda, everything is three, everything can be classified, para, 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 and apara, and all those triadic things, that's a cultural thing which is developed extremely to a level which is holistic and holographic, like everything must bear this imprint, this triadic distinction, and because of this, uh, the people who have been going on the scholarly side, uh, sometimes on fruitless speculation, just uh, dead intellectualism, they have simply exaggerated on it. And there are people, when they read Sanskrit exegesis, comments in Sanskrit, they sometimes get completely puzzled because those guys come strong with the knower, the noble, the act of knowing, the triadic aspect of this and that, and people are completely flabbergasted. For most of the cases, remember that all these mentions are just intellectual exercises which have only a point to show that everything is in everything. Everything is related to everything. There is a correlation and a colligation and the universe is consistent with itself and we are not talking about something out of the blue. But else, this aspect with knower, knowledge and the known is very often in the Upanishadic, Brahmanic, and yes, in the texts like Yoga Sutra and others, it is overrated and exaggerated, which means in practice, many people look at this kind of statement and they say, right, you know, what does it mean that I can go in such a state of mind or I can practice such a yoga or whatever in which I, the knower, the known, and the knowledge become one. It sounds very poetic to say the knower, the knowledge, and the known have become one. What does it mean in practice? It doesn't give me anything. It's just like pure poetry. Maybe I can metaphorically and in a hyperbole kind of way, I can understand, have the flavor of something very mystical there. But in practice, if I would ask to describe, did you ever experience in your life a situation where at least 50%, not 100%, you experienced a state where the knower, the knowledge and the known have become one? You're going to say, beg your pardon, what are you talking about? You know, How can you identify such a thing in the daily life? What does it manifest like? Does it give you an itch behind the left ear? Or how would you identify it? Is there any concrete sign? Is there any psychological sign? And that's exactly where the problem is. We are talking here about states of consciousness which are equanimous and which cannot be defined in terms of normal psychology. And because of this I insist, you are going to hear, and there is actually a famous sutra in the chapter number 3, which comes back to this on a practical, with a practical purpose, and that will be pretty difficult to bring that to something practical, but we'll try to do that at that point.
But what I'm trying to warn you is every time when you find this story with the knowledge, the known and the knower, take a deep breath and just go further, because the meaning is very simple, theoretically, and practically it simply means experiencing a state of consciousness of samapati, samiyama, samadhi, in which one is experiencing an absolute indistinguishable oneness. It's like everything becomes one. But that cannot be described in practice. It's more simple for me to tell, simply look in a yantra or look on a black dot on the wall until you become one with it. How many people can say I have focused upon one thing until I didn't know who I was, until I forgot about me, I forgot about the place where I was, I forgot about the meanings, the knowledge, and everything just became a sort of pure existence, a sort of pure consciousness. This is, again, theory. In practice, these things have to be approached in another way. This is uh, a fact of Raja Yoga, in which sometimes we have been given directly the final result. Oh, if you do this until the knowledge, the known, and the, know, the knower become one. Right. But where is the practicality of it? Therefore, we have to look for the practicality somewhere else. I just wanted to warn you that every time you find this story with knowledge known and knower, don't take it too seriously. Realize that it refers to something very high, but that the methodology is somewhere else. That just describes an effect, and it describes it right, but in such metaphysical terms that practically we cannot relate to it. And in the Sutra number 42, he continues, he simply said that, he reminded actually because he said that allusively in the beginning, that the mind in an even identified way, it becomes a peace and equal. And in the Sutra number 42, he says, when this state, he means this state of samapati or samadhi, when this state, which is also a synonymous of samadhi, I commented here, is mixed up with the concepts related to the word, the meaning, and idea, it is known as Savitarka Samapati, or actually Savitarka Samadhi. Uh, Patanjali has been turning the round circle, he has been going the full circle round, he actually has come back to his first statement. I don't know how many of you remember this, because we never wrote it down, and those Sanskrit words are difficult for most of you, but somewhere in the beginning sutras, after defining the five uh, forms of uh, actions of the mind and how to stop them, Patanjali actually had started defining the steps of samadhi. And he has been defining a lot of forms of samadhi, and he had been reaching up to the so-called asamprajnata samadhi. There were four, or actually eight, forms of samadhi which were all called samprajnata samadhi grouped and those were like from the lower to the high ones and then on top of those eight uh, samprajnata samadhi there was a ninth one which was called asamprajnata samadhi and that asamprajnata samadhi was more abstract more detached more spiritual more close to a pure spirituality Actually, I would like to remind it here that Patanjali has said very clearly that even the ninth form of Samadhi from his list, or if you want to make those double fours, you could just four, then that would be the fifth form of Samadhi. So some people count them in a different way. 
I will not uh, make a diagram on the board because it will disturb the filming process. And uh, you can, it's not really that important. You can go at home on the text and see those things. Uh, basically, he was speaking about forms of samadhi which start from more concrete aspects, going to more and more mental and abstract aspects, and they were actually grouped in four forms, which were called, if you uh, remember, the first one of them was about Vitarka. He said in the Sutra that when the Samadhi is related with discrimination, thinking, ecstasy, or sense of I-ness, perception of the I-ness, then automatically it becomes one of those forms of Samadhi. And actually each one of them can be taken in the positive meaning and in the negative meaning. Like first of all, having that aspect and then renouncing that aspect. So he called their discrimination, the first of them, Vitarka. And from Vitarka he came to the two names, Maybe I should nevertheless change my mind and write these things, because I see in the eyes of some of you that this is getting slippery. <coughs> the first concept was Vitarka, which he catalogued as discrimination, a discriminative function of the mind. And from this Vitarka, he decided that the Samadhi called the, can be called Savitarka and versus Nirvitarka Samadhi with Vitarka and Samadhi in which Vitarka has been dropped and in the same way each other concept Vichara gave rise to Savichara Samadhi this is a superior one because Vichara means uh, thinking, a superior thinking function and Nirvichara then the next uh, symptom was Ananda, which goes to Sananda with ecstasy and Nirananda beyond ecstasy. And actually afterwards Asmita, and that becomes to Sa Asmita with Aines and Nirasmita. Samadhi. And all those eight forms, or four if you prefer, they were called Samprajnata Samadhi. And then he says, when you go above these, you are going to another level of Samadhi, which is called Asamprajnata, which is making that the support, here the support is somewhat concrete, and here the support is more abstract. So this is why 8 plus 1 or 4 plus 1 depends how you take them. Again, this is pure scholarly stuff. It will not uh, be very useful for you in the practice of Raja Yoga. But uh, I just wanted to clarify it so that we, uh, you don't just hear me saying a lot of crazy Sanskrit words. Now, um, actually, Patanjali himself does not put any order into these. And I told at that time, I don't know how many of you were able to follow because the words were not there on the board, that these, even these forms, they do not seem to be put in a hierarchical order. Like we cannot really say that uh, Savichara Samadhi is, for example, lower than Sasmita Samadhi, like level 2 and 4. I have tried to explain this, but it's very difficult to explain it to those of you who don't have a 
deeper knowledge in yoga. So those of you who are more advanced and who have joined various other courses like in Kashmir Shaivism and others probably understand a bit deeper what I'm saying here because these represent to some functions of the mind. The mind, those of you who have studied the mind according to the deeper yoga, and this is something which we teach in the courses, the mind is characterized by functions such as manas, ahamkara, buddhi, the deeper mind, and then beyond that prakriti or the background energy. And these four forms fit exactly with those because savitarka is the one which fits with manas, the discriminative mind, the inferior one. But then Savichara fits with Buddhi, so that simply means they are not in order. We are talking about one and three. What is two according to the Tantric tradition? Asmita, the equivalent of Ahamkara. And therefore, if you would want to put them in a hierarchical order, the Tantric tradition says that these four should be put in the order of this being the lowest, number one, this being the second, this being the third, and this being the fourth. So, somehow, and uh, Patanjali never tried to put numbers on them and to say, he simply made a listing, an enumeration, and in that listing he didn't try to list them in a proper order. Therefore, I'm telling that you can split the hair and go even deeper into which one of them comes after which one of them which one of them comes from which function of the mind and of the subconscious and this and that, but that surpasses way, way too much the scope of the commentary that we do here. I'm just showing to you that this can be taken to a level uh, of scholarly uh, detail, although again, I'm also telling you that in practice, this is not so important. And suddenly now, after all this time, Patanjali comes concluding and tells us again that when this state is mixed up with concept rela- concepts related to the word, meaning, and idea, he means things which are concrete somewhat. It is known as Savitarka Samapati or Savitarka Samadhi. Basically, Patanjali has gone a whole circle round. He has just taken us through all kinds of things. And now suddenly he comes back to his listing of the forms of Samadhi, and he says, when this famous Samadhi and this state, which I have told you so much about, is obtained in relationship with this and this, you remember, it is related with Savitarka. We spoke about it in the Sutra number 12, or whatever number that was, somewhere there, 12, 13, I don't remember the number exactly. (coughs) So, actually... Here you could have said, well, uh, what about uh, Nirvichara or Savichara and Sananda? Why doesn't he speak about those? In Indian philosophy, usually they have this kind of thing. When they want to mention something from a group, which usually means more or less the same thing, they usually use the first of the list, and then they put etc. For example, when they say, the eight yogic powers of anima, etc., what is it? It means anima, mahima, lagima, garima, prapti, and all those things, the shitva and so on, which means actually the eight mahasiddhis. But I'm not going to mention them again and again, all eight of them. I'm just saying anima, etc. Therefore, here, the way Patanjali puts it, it's like he says savitarka, etc. He means all those material forms of samadhi are involved. He mentions savitarka, But remember, there is no peculiar reason 
for which he would speak one sutra again about Savitarka, but he would actually not speak about Saananda or Saasmita. It's simply because he takes them as an example, and whatever he says about this applies identically with the corresponding variations, of course, to all the other, because all those two times four, all those eight forms of Samadhi, they belong more or less to the same box, to the same category, and therefore he treats them like a group. Therefore, here, this is how to understand why he suddenly mentions this one in particular. In the Sutra number 43, he describes the equivalent of it, and he gives us to understand that the same judgment, with and without, which should be applied about the other three in that box, but he will not bother to mention those anymore, because if he uses this first, etc. This is his uh, education, his background in argumentation and philosophy, is just to use anima, etc., savitarka, etc. The rest is up to you to make it up. Uh, it's just the same. So, in the sutra number 43, he says, after the clarification of the memory, when the mind is as if devoid of its own nature, and when the true knowledge of the object, alone, object is alone shining within, that is nirvitarka. So here we are still dealing with the mind. I remind to all of you that this vitarka, just for the sake of, you don't need to learn this, but just for the sake to see that he makes sense, he is following the idea, very clearly in his mind. And he said, uh, first of all, when the contents of the mind is mixed up with concepts related to word, meaning, and idea, which means a discriminative mind, that's Savitarka, and at the same level now, when the mind is devoid of its nature and the knowledge of the object alone is shining within, that is Nirvitarka, which means that we are not beyond object. We are still related with the objects themselves, but still uh, that concentration. Even then, the mind can be associated with thought about those objects, or with the objects shining alone, without any movement of the mind. And these make these famous pairs, Savitarka, Nirvitarka, Savichara, Nirvichara, and all the others. That all, he just reminds to us that one of them is with object, and the other one is by suppressing some part of this mental mechanism. So, nirvitarka is an absorption, if you want, into an object, like we can take a physical object for this, which, which is without argumentation, without confusion of the three aspects of the world, of the object, namely, which are name, form, and meaning, uh, Basically, it's without inner discourse. The object is there, but there is this uh, oneness about it. It's a little bit difficult to understand, because, um, and this is perhaps worth mentioning, it's another constant of the psychology of yoga, and even in Buddhism we find uh, mentions about this. For them, the description of everything is related with two gross aspects and one which is subtle. They call them name, form, and meaning. In Sanskrit, name and form are called Nama Rupa, and there exists a composite Sanskrit, which is called Nama Rupa, which means the name and form, because always the mind identifies everything by name and form. It, gives, it identifies its form 
visually and its name conceptually. And then there is also, of course, the meaning which is given to that. Like if it's the name and form of your mother, if she is dear to you, then automatically there is a meaning. This is the name and form and the meaning of it, because it's somebody whom I know well and who is dear to me. And therefore, uh, there is this aspect which again is used in their psychology at a later level. When these three aspects are appeased, then automatically we are still at the level of that object, but it's a meditation which is deeper. That is why in Savitarka there is still some discrimination, and in Nirvitarka there is no more discrimination, although the level of the meditation is the same. We are still referring to a discernible object that is analyzed with the mind. Uh, there is no need to go deeper than this into it, because we'll transform it into theory. So, I'm going actually to the next sutra to see how beautifully Patanjali finalizes, rounds up the subject. And he says, by this explanation, the one which was being given before, how it is with Savitarka and how it is with Nirvitarka. Uh, the Savichara and Nirvichara Samadhi, having the subtle for their object, have also been explained. He again means etc. Because now he suddenly refers to the second. And he says, by this explanation of Savitarka, Nirvitarka, the Savichara and Nirvichara, which means the next ones, and then why not Sananda and Nirananda, Sasmita and, of course he means those also, they are also having explained, have also been explained, but he gives a hint about Savichara and Nirvichara, having the subtle for their object. Let's explain, since Patanjali mentions this, another few minutes of analysis of this fine analysis of psychology. Nirvitar, Savitarka, Nirvitarka, they refer to the gross mind, which the tantrics have called manas. This manas is a sensory mind, is the discriminative mind, is the mind of the ordinary intelligence, which relies on the perceptions of the senses, and therefore its action is based on physical perception. For example, I can look at the different microphones which are here, I can concentrate on one of them at a time, I can make the difference between them. My mind says, this is a microphone, it has a shape slightly different from that one, and conceptually this is a device which records sound or which helps in, trans in uh, conveying sound in electric waves. So basically, I'm looking at this object and my mind starts analyzing it. It gives it a name, it has about it a form, a representation, and a meaning that I know what this microphone is. This is my physical, my, my most gross mind. Manas does that. And Patanjali says, even with a microphone or a physical object, a dot on a wall, you can reach Samadhi. You can reach the first form of samadhi, can be reached with something physical. And what have you got to do? You simply have to focus on it until you see no distinction anymore. Until you simply merge with it. You can, can you reach samadhi by looking into a black dot, like doing trataka? Paradoxically, yes. That is why it has been said to those of you who studied trataka already with this school, that trataka is a method which becomes very advanced 
and it can reach as far as one wishes ultimately, even states of samadhi being possible just from Trataka itself. Because you look at a dot and you become the dot. And how far you can go into becoming the dot says how far you can go into becoming one, into becoming unified. And the difference between Savitarka and Nirvitarka was that in Savitarka there is still this Nama Rupa meaning that somehow I'm having a very, very vast cosmic whatever perception of this microphone and I'm saying, my God, I can see this microphone in such an amazing way. And that happens actually sometimes just by taking psychedelic drugs. You can see a microphone as becoming very, very interesting and look the whole night at it and find uh, feel completely elated about it. Therefore, yes, there is an inferior, the, the first start of the thing. And nirvitarka means that you focus so much on it that you can't say anymore. You are still at the level of the microphone. The point of what you do is a physical object, the microphone, or a dot on the wall, or whatever it is. But you have gone so deep in it, that somehow the name, the form, the meaning, they start like blurring and merging with each other, and the mind is like almost stopping. So you are experiencing a sort of twilight zone, in which you don't even realize that this is the microphone, or you actually don't need to realize that it's a microphone, because the mind is in a more expanded form. So that's the difference, if the level is the same, but still there is a progress from Sa-Vitarka to Nir-Vitarka, where you have gone deeper. And Patanjali says, by this explanation, the Savichara and Nirvichara Samadhi, etc., as well as the others, have been, or have also been explained, but he adds as a parenthesis, because he mentions Savichara and Nirvichara. He says, having the subtle for their object. What does it mean? It means instead of focusing on a microphone, I'm focusing on something subtle. Can you give me an example of something subtle? For example, an inner color in your aura is something subtle, or if you prefer something more general, an emotion. An emotion or a thought. If I, if instead of meditating on a microphone or on a black dot, I am sitting and meditating on an emotion or on a thought, such as, for example, let's meditate on peace. What is peace? Many people say, I wouldn't know where to start from. Peace is a thought. It's a concept. Yes, but you can meditate on peace or on love or on such other abstract concepts. And here, Patanjali says, the same rule applies. When you meditate well enough on, let's say, friendship or love, then automatically you can reach the Sa-Vichara, and then if you go very deep into that meditation, you will need, you will reach Nirvichara, which means there are there again two levels. One in which the name, form, meaning, this triadic thing of the mind is still analyzing it, like I'm looking at the concept of compassion, loving kindness or whatever, and I'm analyzing it, and I'm focusing on it, and I can feel compassion, and my mind says, oh, compassion is really good, all this world needs compassion, and I can identify compassion, and I can make connection with the compassion of the Buddhas, and with this and that, so I'm giving it a name, I'm giving it a form, a mental form, of course, and I'm giving it a meaning. But I can focus on compassion so much 
that at some point I become compassion. Then I am reaching the nirvichara, which means that this, the differentiation has blurred, they almost merge, I merge with the object of meditation, and the object of meditation this time is further, it's higher. You can see immediately that even here, uh, Patanjali has jumped from level number one to level number three. He sticks to this order. Patanjali apparently did, does not care too much about this tattvic theory from Samkhya and all the tantric theories about elements, tattvas, sub-levels of the chakras and all those things. That is why he keeps uh, mentioning them separate from each other, while here I have tried to give you a hint into the fact that there seems to be a secret order to those, if that makes any difference for you at this point. So, all in all, Patanjali has come back to this. He has shed a little bit more light on all this caboodle with Savitarka, Nirvitarka, Savichara, Nirvichara, and all the others, and he has told us a little bit what to understand about the difference from a strictly psychological and therefore a bit theoretical standpoint. And he then he continues with an amazing sentence, because suddenly he extends. He says, well, I have given you the start, you know what comes, the same judgment is for the others. And in the sutra number 45, he says, and the province of the subtle sphere reaches up to the noumenal, or to the non-differentiation. This he calls by the name Alinga, he uses in Sanskrit, which he means, uh, by which he means uh, the non-manifestation. It's for the first time that he mentions clearly this concept from Samkhya, which you have had in the second month lectures about Purusha and Prakriti. It's for the first time, he says, like this, going from step to step along those many steps which may be there, four or eight or fifty-eight, it doesn't matter how many of them there are, but he says, and the province of the subtle sphere, this thing, it extends and extends, and it reaches up to the nomenal. The word nomenal, I have used it here because it's scholarly uh, accepted by the English language translators. It is, of course, borrowed from Greek, from Gnosticism, actually, and from the Greek language, with the two uh, concepts, nominal and phenomenal. So, nominal, which comes from nose, which means the intellect, the abstract intellect, but which is actually considered more than the intellect, as we uh, put it in yoga, which is more like an archetypal thing, which is beyond actual existence. I'm reminding again, and that's a fundamental thing, you can never get away from that, if you want to understand the deeper levels of spirituality, you always have to have in, in your mind, and if you haven't done that, remember that there is a lecture in the second month which explains that in detail about the so-called philosophical basis of yoga, and it is something which I have explained in the metaphysical presentation which I made in January or February when I started doing these presentations, and it's something which I won't need to repeat and I hope that one day we'll have it put in a brochure so that all of you can read that again and again. The essential model of yoga for understanding the universe as energy and spirit is this ultimate division in Shakti and Shiva, Prakriti and Purusha, manifestation and non-manifestation, 
samsara and nirvana, as the Tibetans and the Buddhists put it, and, yes, in Gnosticism, and as well in the Western intellectual, philosophical, academic degree comments on such uh, oriental issues, it has been then called nomen, I'm sorry, phenomenal for the Shakti Prakriti and nominal for the Purusha. I'm saying it again. In the original meaning, the word nominal represents something which has an abstract intellectual existence, and therefore many of you in yoga would say, wait a second, that represents the mental body, the Vijnana Maya Kosha, or maybe the causal body and the archetypes. But wait a second, the Vijnana Maya Kosha, the mental body of the human being, and the Ananda Maya Kosha, the causal body, these are still belonging to Prakriti. These are levels of Prakriti, of the manifestation. So why do you call nominal, like intellectual, something which you mean beyond all those seven planes of the universe? It's just a convention of senses, because words change their meaning when you cross them from a language to another, from a culture to another, from a philosophical system to another. The Western philosophers, they preferred to use the word nominal as representing Purusha, the non-manifested, the transcendent aspect, the Nirvana, the void, the Shiva aspect, and they preserved the word phenomenal for everything which is Samsara, Prakriti, the Shakti aspect of the universe. And therefore, reading again this sutra now, he says, and the province of the subtle sphere reaches up to the nominal or the non-differentiation, the Purusha, which simply means this is stretching all the way to the edge, as I told you so often in various courses, those of you who have gone through those courses, there is an edge according to yoga. The energy is going to the ultimate level in Sahasrara, and after that level there is nothing else but an edge. Beyond that edge there is the undescribable, the mysterious unknown, the Shiva consciousness, the great void, that mysterious Purusha, which cannot be described by any concept, by any word, and which cannot be approximated or suggested by any energy of any kind, because it is beyond any form of energy and any form of manifestation. And therefore, I am saying again, here Patanjali says, this distinction and this going further up and further up, he says, it goes till the edge. It goes till the edge of the manifestation, till the edge of the great void. He says, it reaches up to the nominal, which he calls here, funny enough, a linga, because linga means symbol, sign, therefore something still manifested, and a linga is like the one which is beyond even the sign or the symbol, therefore something which is entirely transcendent. It's Purusha, ultimately. So, he, Patanjali said, this description is just something which continues, and uh, there is, but now he has first mentioned the noumenal, the transcendent, the non-manifestation, the Purusha. And therefore, he simply says, those stages which have been explained until now are only forms of Samadhi with seed or with support, which means the next division is that all these forms, including the Asam Prajnata Samadhi, 
they are included as a bigger concept, and since I wrote everything, let me write that as well, and they are classified in the theory of Patanjala Yoga. All these are classified as Sa Bija Samadhi. Bija means seed, and Sa Bija means with seed. With seed, because everything in this universe has a seed, right, for the yogis, Every energy and everything was a seed. For example, all the manifestations of the physical matter and all the manifestations of this universe have their seed in the five elements. They are just manifestations of the primordial earth, water, fire, air, and ether. And therefore, the yogis always in their meditation, they have tried to go to the seed. What is the seed of physicality and solidity? The earth element, what is the seed of everything which is liquid in this universe? The water element, and so on. So the yogis always have tried to reduce the categories to a seed. There is a seed principle which manifests all the rest. And that is why all the things in the universe, energies, tattvas, mantras, all the basic energies, principles and archetypes and symbols and everything, they can be called from a certain standpoint seed. Each one of them is the seed of something, and they refer to all the manifested things. All the manifested things exist because of this seed principle, which of course alludes to a lot of things, out of which the most important is, no doubt, the sexual energy in the way in which it is understood in Tantra, that the sexual energy is a seed. It's representing exactly the seed of the manifestation. And that's why Patanjali now, he tells us, those stages which have been explained until now, they are, they are only forms of samadhi with seed or with support. All of them refer to something. They refer to something from the physical world, they refer to something from the astral world, or they refer to something even from the causal world, but they still refer to something with a seed. Therefore, which has a support, in one of these three worlds. And automatically, then he tells us that there must be something above that which is without seed, because it's the same thing, sa-bija. Sa-bija, it automatically makes you think this guy will sooner or later hit us with something which is called nir-bija. Sa-bija, nir-bija, there must be the same thing, with and without. That's precisely what it is. The Samadhi, which is referring to the transcendent aspect, and which is regularly called Nirvikalpa Samadhi, he calls it also technically Nirbija Samadhi, Samadhi without a Bija. Let's first get there. In the Sutra number 47, however, he, before hitting us with the final conclusion, he is automatically telling us some of the conditions which are reaching there, up on this scale of samadhis. And funny enough, he takes as example of them this time, the nirvichara, the second class, and from the second class, the nirvichara one. Uh, again, I'm saying, it appears very much that he is doing this like a Hindu philosopher. He takes one and he says this applies to all of them, and if you understand the hierarchy and the order, it's very well. If not, you will remain a bit confused. He says, after becoming absolutely perfect in nirvichara samadhi, the spiritual light dawns. Finally, he is coming to the 
ultimate level and to the highest meanings of this, but he says those can occur only after perfecting the previous ones. So he says after becoming absolutely perfect in Nirvichara Samadhi or the others, again it matters, it doesn't matter one of them which you are practicing, then the spiritual light dawns. In this way, Patanjali says that it's almost impossible for somebody to reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi suddenly without a prior preparation in other forms of Samadhi. That is why you should know that Samadhi usually comes gradually, although there are some turning points in one's personal evolution. Take uh, the evolution of a famous yogi that was uh, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. Again, he was one of the archetypal yogis, one of the spiritual models of the modern times. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa meditated with Kali. Because of his Kali meditations, he reached many forms of Savitarka, Nirvitarka, Savichara, Nirvichara, Saananda, Nirananda, Sasmita, Nirasmita, Samadhi. He became very good at those for years and years. He practiced those ecstatic experiences, but he had not yet reached the Nirbija above even Asamprajnata Samadhi, the real, real high ones. And But after he did those experiments for ten years or so, then he reached, he started reaching, he was taught, and he reached pretty suddenly then the Nirvikalpa or the Nirbija Samadhi. And Patanjali explained this, saying that after becoming absolutely perfect in Nirvichara Samadhi, the spiritual light dawns. This is one very hard uh, statement. It is, uh, from the standpoint of the Tantric tradition, it is not absolutely, absolutely, absolutely true, but uh, it is the 99.99% type of spiritual rule, and it is a very hard statement when you compare it with some of the forms of imposture which are existing in the modern world. Unfortunately, in the modern world, and this is especially happening in the last 30 years, it seems that ever since the hippies took the road of India, uh, something clicked in the mind of everybody, and one of the consequences which uh, apparently did not exist much 80 years ago, just to mention uh, a time zone, a time uh, delimitation, suddenly there have appeared a lot of no more and no less spiritual imposters, which means all kind of freaks and dudes, and men and women, it doesn't matter, who proclaim themselves enlightened beings. Uh, perhaps the acme, the absolute preposterous acme of this, is in circles like those uh, remaining in the wake of the Osho Rajneesh experience in Pune, where a community of crazy freaks <coughs> has suddenly generated, uh, I don't know how many tens of so-called enlightened people. They keep telling me that if you go in Pune, you'll find at least ten weird dudes who proclaim themselves enlightened and they give satsang and they give uh, darshan and they give uh, diksha and they give shaktipat and I don't know what and all of them uh, pretend to have appeared overnight. Actually it's not only westerners, it's plenty of Indians in them. The same thing happened with Indian uh, people, some Indian people in the wake of the existence of 
Nisargadatta Maharaj, Papaji, Punyaji, and Ramana Maharishi. All these people had very simplified forms of Jnana Yoga, and suddenly as soon as these people disappeared, we find a plethora of Tom, Dicks, and Harrys who suddenly pretend that they are enlightened beings. Uh, Rajnish himself, in a study which I'm sorry I don't have here to quote for you, but in a study which he himself wrote in the 1968 or something, at a time when he was not tripping in his Pune experiment, and he was expressing some things in a more uh, clear way, Rajnish himself accuses this phenomenon in 1970, and he says now in 1970 in our beloved country India, so that was in the 70s already, there have appeared a lot of crooks who claim they are enlightened babas and sadhus and so on, and he simply says, I can demonstrate to you that it is not so, through the common sense. He says, if one person gets enlightened, this and this and this and this things happen, and so many people are touched and changed. And he says, instead of this, we are witnessing more and more materialism, more and more egoism, more and more violence, more and more this and that, you know, all the trends with abortions, endless abortions in India, mutant killing the female fetuses, and all kinds of horrible things. And he says, this would not happen if we'd have 20 enlightened people living in this nation. This itself shows that something is wrong. Either the theory about what enlightened people bring to this world is wrong, or those people are not enlightened. It's as simple as that. And that is why he actually accuses pretty hard, and he says this is not the case. This is just people... What I'm trying to say here, Patanjali says very clearly, these samadhis, they evolve from each other. Most of these so-called enlightened people, they go on the preposterous statement that they actually have reached some sort of ultimate enlightenment of the purusha, of the pure spirit, which would be a nirbija samadhi, a samadhi which is without any prop in this world, therefore it would be a nirvikalpa samadhi, and because of this uh, there is nothing they can relate it to, and basically the uh, outcome of this is, I am a complete idiot, I am completely impure, I am a complete nobody, but I am, have reached uh, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which unfortunately I can't explain to you and you, can, you cannot understand, and therefore you have to take it for granted. Like uh, when you looked at Shivananda, you expected to see some sort of great yogi, somebody with clarity, with discrimination, with morality, with ethics, with purity, with intelligence, with spiritual knowledge, with spiritual experience, with sensitivity, being able to feel energies, chakras, maybe even to, I don't know, see auras, perceive things. You are expecting something. But uh, when uh, you look at me, those people would say, you are not going to see any of this, and yet I am as big as Shivananda, but in a way in which you simply cannot understand. Usually the spiritual experience of this planet shows that that is bullshit, to simplify it. That is simply a lie. Either those people lie to themselves also, or they simply lie to the rest of the world. That is a debatable problem. But the fact is that you are going to hear in your life some people who make this preposterous aspect that they have got nothing in Prakriti, 
that can relate them to this. They are not more calm in their mind. They are not more deep. They are not more even. They are not more wise. They are not more pure. They are not more intelligent. They are not more detached. They are not more this and they are not more that. But nevertheless, you should treat them as enlightened. This is usually like the story with the clothes of the emperor, with the new clothes of the emperor. Even a child looking would tell the fundamental truth that the emperor is actually naked. It is interesting that such people sometimes get a large audience. I've seen several examples, and I don't want to single any one of them out, but you can find out your own examples. And it seems to be a disease of Kali Yuga. It seems to be a disease of modern times that there appear more and more of these sort of impostors who claim that although they haven't built it up with Nirvitarka, Savitarka, Savichara, Nirvichara, and there is nothing there, they have suddenly jumped at the last level, which cannot be quantified or measured in any way, anyhow, and therefore don't try to look for a trace of any kind, because they have reached it, but nobody can see it. Usually these things are sounding like delusion, self-delusion and uh, external delusion, because Patanjali in this fundamental sutra tells us, after becoming perfected in Nirvichara Samadhi, etc., the spiritual light dawns. Therefore, remember that the probability that somebody should reach the ultimate Samadhi without anything else along the path is almost nil. I'm not saying it's impossible. There are a few methods, such as some things in the Tibetan Dzogchen, but even the Tibetans practicing Dzogchen, they have realized that this is becoming too much, and they have induced, they have introduced in their system the five Dhyani Buddhas, the purification of the elements and emotions, and all kinds of other things which we study in this school, and which you can understand practically, because they also realize that it's impossible really to start from terra terre, as the French say, from down to earth completely, and to jump directly to the top of the building without anything between them, and therefore uh, there is nothing to demonstrate, nothing to see in any way. That's more like a theoretical example, but in practice we do see some examples, and we do see some traces of the path which one has crossed through their meditation. And that is why here it's a serious setback for the people who state absurd things like this, because actually uh, Patanjali simply says they have a certain graduation and do not state that uh, it just came absolutely without any preparation whatsoever, and therefore there is no manifested trace of that. And he also says in this wonderful sutra, not only, he says, he describes it, he says, the spiritual light dawns. He describes it as spiritual light, and um, I would like to insist again, there is a very severe confusion in spiritual circles about what this spiritual light is. Patanjali has mentioned it before, by saying that you can focus on this spiritual light as an exercise, and I told you that the branch of yoga, which is called Taraka Yoga, and which we also teach, it's one of the approaches to the fundamental yoga. But um, 
I have also called your attention then, and I feel the need to say it again, that this spiritual light does not mean visions of light which people have with the eyes closed or with the eyes open. If you close your eyes and suddenly see explosions of light, and you open your eyes and you still see flashes of light in front of you, that does not mean that you have seen the light. 90% of the cases, such phenomena are what will be called astral and sometimes mental phenomena of perceiving subtle light. These subtle lights appear even when you die, and there appears the light of a paradise and the light of the corresponding hell as a very bright light of a certain color and as a very dull light of the same corresponding color. And therefore, to see colors bright or dull does not mean anything in terms of enlightenment. Do not let yourself deluded, because there exist some persons in this world who are very visual and who can see lots of lots of uh, artesian wells of light in front of their eyes, and they sometimes they delude a whole following of people by describing to them the flabbergasting visions of light which they have, and claiming that this no doubt must mean that they see God because they actually see light, and uh, God is light. But at the same time, a candle is light. If this is God, why don't you throw yourself into the fire? Because it's God. It's light, but it's not the light of God, only indirectly. This is the light of an element. It's the light, an energy corresponding to the Tejas Tattva, to the fire element. Therefore, remember that seeing light simply is not the same thing with the spiritual light. The so-called spiritual light, it is called the light of light. It is, um, I forgot now the epithet, it is given an amazing epithet in the Christian mysticism by the way of the visions of light uh, concerning Jesus, the transfiguration of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And actually this light is a light of a special quality, and it's not a, it's not even like, oh yeah, yeah, you are right, yeah, I know, yes, yes, sometimes I can see a light of a very special quality. I'm not talking about that, it is the light of the light, it is something beyond, it's a qualitative level, which is something which exists beyond the beyond, and that is why it's very, very difficult to describe it in this way, and uh, remember that even when Patanjali describes the spiritual reality that he says the spiritual light dawns, he actually means indeed a state of opening of Sahasrara, which is characterized by a certain form of luminosity, but it is not a vision of light. It's not like uh, you close your eyes and you see light. There is something else which manifests on another body, through another mechanism, through another channel of the mind. This just to make it clear for you and not to get you deluded by fact that some people see light or that you see light and suddenly you believe that I don't know what is there. Seeing light is usually an astral phenomenon and the astral world is as dazzling as the aurora borealis and the colors which you see in the astral world are so unearthly, so superhuman that they can elate you beyond measure, and still that does not mean much from the standpoint of the spiritual realization. This being said,
the next sutra and I hope we'll manage to conclude this chapter tonight and actually there are just four sutras left so let's give it a try the sutra number 48 describes he said you are reaching to the limit of the noumenal to the end of the manifestation and thus the spiritual light dawns and so on and there he says there at the borderline above these forms of samadhi the consciousness reaches the truth and basically he calls this truth prajna which is a terminology which the Buddhists from Tibet have used a lot in their concept of prajna paramita pragya if you want to uh, put it in a more actual pronunciation in Sanskrit and this prajna or pragya therefore is identified with the manifestation of purusha as kind of supreme knowledge as kind of supreme truth if you prefer so here Patanjali says it that is where at the limit at this borderline when you reach the absolute ultimate level of energy where the void gaps and you are confronted with this mysterious reality of the noumenal or purusha there the consciousness reaches the truth, the actual truth, the truth with a capital T, which means actually God. In India, truth with a capital T is one of the three names given to God. God is Satyam, Shivam, Sundaram. Satyam means therefore the supreme truth. Shivam meaning at the same time goodness, the complete beneficence, the good beneficial, beneficial aspect, and uh, Sundaram meaning beauty, the harmony, the absolute beauty. Therefore, God is truth, God is harmony or beauty, and God is goodness or the all-good aspect of this universe, the all-beneficial aspect of this universe. And the consciousness reaches, therefore, this. Those of you who remember the lecture from the second month about the philosophical basis of yoga, you remember, of course, that there I have even described how this essential core of manifestation, which is Purusha or Atman, is actually the point from where all knowledge, omniscience, and the attainment of anything in this universe becomes possible, because that's like the neutral gear, that's like the center, the hub of everything which exists in this universe, Therefore, any knowledge and any action becomes possible from that center. That is why here Patanjali confirms, there at the border, when crossing the border to Nirvana, that is where the consciousness reaches the truth, the long-awaited truth, the long-sought-after truth. And he tells us a very important thing in the next sutra, by mentioning this knowledge is different from the knowledge acquired to testimony and inference because it has as object the absolute truth. He comes there because if you remember somewhere in the beginning sutras of this chapter when describing the movements of the mind one of the movements of the mind was actually a sattvic movement of the mind and deeply beneficial. It was the right knowledge the actual right knowledge, and Patanjali considered even that an obstacle from the standpoint of Samadhi. 
right knowledge is much better than erroneous knowledge because right knowledge is sattvic and it is elevating us. But nevertheless, even right knowledge is a vritti and because it moves the mind, because it agitates the mind, it's still not the final ocean of peace of the mind. And therefore, Patanjali now mentions this truth which I'm mentioning for you here, which seems to be a knowledge, like, hey, I have attained the truth, that means I know the truth with a capital T. This truth is not a right knowledge, it's not a pure knowledge. I'm not talking even a pure, about a pure knowledge, I'm talking about something which is not a category of knowledge, because it doesn't come through the function of knowledge, it comes through non-movement of the mind. That is why he says, this knowledge is different from the knowledge acquired to testimony and inference. If you remember, testimony and inference were two of the methods used for establishing the right knowledge. If you look back at what I commented when I spoke about right knowledge, right knowledge was coming from three sources, the scriptures, the gurus, and your own experience. And, uh, I'm sorry, the witness of the previous, which were the scriptures and the gurus, the inference, the sound inference, which meant the logical deduction, and one's own direct experience. And he says this is not that knowledge which comes from testimony, inference, and this. I'm not talking about the sattvic pure knowledge. That is transcended. I'm talking about a knowledge beyond knowledge. I'm not talking about a knowledge which is done with the mind, with the intellect. This is a direct knowledge, like an absorption, like becoming that. And that is why he says, this knowledge is different from the knowledge acquired to testimony and inference, which means through a high sophisticated mind, because it has as object the absolute truth. It, because it focuses on Purusha, on the nominal, on the transcendent, on the Shiva, on the void, on this uh, non-manifested aspect. And therefore from it, there does not come a knowledge which is quantitative, which means I know this and I know that. If somebody would ask Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, what do you know about Atman? The only answer which Ramakrishna Paramahamsa can give is to stay silent and to enter in Samadhi. Because there is nothing to be said about that. He cannot tell you something which he knows, because there is nothing to be told. You cannot say something about the void, about the transcendent, because that is beyond word, energy, concept and anything. Therefore, there is nothing which can express it. And that is why Patanjali calls the attention. It, this is, we also call knowledge, but it's another knowledge. It's the knowledge which is propped on the void. And therefore, he says, all those things are sa, bija, they are based on bija, on a seed, and this one is a knowledge with no seed, and therefore he calls it, this is nirvija or nirvikalpa. And therefore this is the last samadhi above those, which is the samadhi based on void, which has as object the purusha, the atman, the shiva consciousness, the void itself. Therefore, he continues in the sutra number 50 by saying, the samskara or residual potency that is born of that knowledge of the truth prevents other samskaras. This is so fundamental and so beautiful. This is another vehement contradiction 
which uh, contradicts people who are using this sort of puerile amateurism in spirituality. People, for example, who want to deny spirituality, and unfortunately those are people, let me be very blunt on it, they are people who are tricked by the demons into doing nothing. That's their trip. Such people are tricked into a laziness to which they give an elegant metaphysical excuse, and their excuse is, you don't need to do anything, because actually, if we are trying to reach to a state without desire, then the desire to get enlightened isn't it a desire also, and it's spoiled. That means when all these ambitious pupils of yours, Swami Vivekananda, who are doing eight hours of yoga per day or whatever, not to mention that they irritate us demons, uh, all these uh, pupils of yours who do this yoga, uh, aren't they actually having a big ego, and actually they are just trying, you know, they just have a big desire, they are not at peace, uh, you have to have no desire, while that is true conceptually, that is not the way it goes pedagogically and in daily life and in actual practice. The tantric yogis have been very clear about this. They have said there are vrittis or vikalpas, vikalpas, thoughts, which lead to nirvikalpa. There are names to lead to the no name, to the nameless. There are forms which lead to the formless. There are desires which lead to desirelessness. That is why the desire for aspiration, for enlightenment, is not called desire, it's called aspiration. It's a different category of desire. It's a desire of a special kind, and this is where Patanjali explains it to those who have ears to hear. He says, the samskara, the residual potency in the mind, that is born of that knowledge of the truth, of this last one which he just mentioned, this knowledge of Purusha prevents other samskaras, which means, hey, we just said before, whatever you do creates samskaras, or if you prefer an equivalent word, I don't know which of them you remember, the other word used for them is vasanas. Vasanas or samskaras are more or less the same, and it means the residual traces in the mind. For example, if in your previous life you have been the taipan of the noble house in Hong Kong, you have developed a lot of Chinese features in your mind, not to mention that you have developed a certain amount of pride and vanity, because you have been a rich merchant man, you have been the Taipan. In this life when you will be born, even as a child, the very first opportunity, exception made when your karma is really bad on you, and sometimes that can be the case, but else, the very first opportunity that you have, you are proud and vanitous, and your parents cannot understand this child, even if you give it a, him a penny, he goes around like he's Napoleon, showing to the other children, I have got a penny, I have got a penny, who is like me? Where does that come? That is a samskara, it's the samskara of pride. This child has been a very proud person, who sowed the seeds of pride, and somewhere in the soil of his mind, in the subconscious which is beyond his, his personality from this life, he actually is ready to grow again the weeds of pride in his mind. And any opportunity will come, he's proud. The yogi says, such a person has the samskaras of pride. 
such person has cultivated pride and the pride is ready to emerge at any moment like a weed which is not weeded periodically. Surely this can appear in many ways. It can happen, I have seen in my life people who because of their pride did terrible deeds, they accumulated a horrible karma. When they came in this life, they were at the same time completely handicapped, which means sometimes physically, horribly, terribly, mentally, existentially handicapped, and at the same time they were sick with a, de- with a demonic vanity. It was such a strange thing to see that some people who are completely in hell because of being really the victims of a terrible karma, at the same time they manifested a sarcastic, demonic type of pride, which you could ask if these people wouldn't be handicapped and would be given a lot of power. My God, what a tyrant would we have here. But fortunately, fortunately for the others, not for that person, Fortunately, this person has been afflicted by a terrible karma and now they are paying through the nose for what they did in a previous life. But basically what I'm trying to say here is this. These are the samskaras. Whatever you do, you develop samskaras. If you are a warrior and fight many wars, you will always tend to be violent till the day when you will manage to eradicate those samskaras completely, like killing the weeds completely. But as any good gardener knows, those damned weeds, they are never eliminated. You weed three years in a row a field, and in the fourth year, I don't know how, but the first ones which will come up are the weeds again. They have a kind of endless vitality to them, and they can come up in the most persecuted conditions. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly in the same way the samskaras or the vasanas are in the mind. And as you realize, because it was mentioned before, this is what the yogis were speaking about. If you do not cancel your sanskaras or vasanas, you are always in danger of sliding back. Patanjali said this some 20 sutras ago, when he said, If asamprajnata samadhi, which is the last but one, I forgot to write there, nirbija, above, or nirvikalpa, if, even in asamprajnata samadhi, if you do not reach, uh, you do not eliminate the sanskaras and you don't pay attention to them, there is still a fall back. You can set back, you can relax, you can fall back in your previous traps as soon as you are not vigilant to guard yourself from this. Therefore, it seems that the only way to actually do that is to go even beyond the Samprajnata Samadhi in Nirbija or Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which is based upon the void, and therefore it annihilates everything because it brings to it the void, the emptiness. And here Patanjali says it wonderfully. The samskara that is born of that, of nirbija or nirvikalpa, prevents other samskaras. Which means you can think of God as the void, as nirvikalpa, as the Shiva nature, as much as you want, and that thought will annihilate all the other thoughts. You can long for God as much as you want, because that desire will destroy all the other foolish and partial desires. That's why there is a name which leads to the nameless, the name of God. All India and not only, it is made of mantras and practices in which you are supposed to repeat the name of God. And people say, hey, why should I repeat uh, Ram, Ram or whatever, Krishna, Krishna or Namah Shivaya or something like this? 
because that is a manifested aspect. That's the one name which destroys all the other names and brings the nameless. It's a kind of snake that eats its own tail and swallows itself totally in the end, and it kind of self-annihilates. That's the name which leads to namelessness, that's the form to le- which leads to the transcendent form, that is the desire to reach, which reaches beyond desire. That is the one samskara which destroys all the other samskaras. Therefore, what Patanjali says is this, do not hesitate to wish for enlightenment. The Tibetan yogis have called it bodhicitta, the thought of enlightenment, and they said you should always have bodhicitta, you should always have the thought of enlightenment, you should always think of your enlightenment. If you don't think about your enlightenment, how are you going to get? An elementary proverb says, the child that does not cry gets no milk. Because when the child is not crying, the mother thinks it's quiet, and is therefore a child to get milk has to cry. If you want to get samadhi, you have to cry. You have to cry for it, which means you have to long for it, and work for it, and ask for it, and yearn for it, and try to grab it by any possible means. This conclusion of some amateurs, which according to my perception again, are just people who are manipulated by demonic forces, by which they stop themselves from the spiritual practice, and sometimes they stop others from spiritual practice with this kind of aberrant, dry intellectual theories, they actually miss the point completely. There is nothing wrong with having the desire for God, for enlightenment, for spiritual realization. There is nothing wrong of making efforts in that direction, because that is not a manifestation of the ego, but it is a manifestation of the self-love, which is the perfect identity of God, and therefore that in itself is the one force that saves and enlightens. Remember that Patanjali mentions it beautifully, and therefore you have to cultivate it as much as possible. This one samskara, to come to the edge of the nominal, and there to reach the actual knowledge of the truth, where the consciousness reaches the truth, that is the way of proceeding for spiritual development, according to Patanjali, who is an authority. And therefore, the last sutra of the chapter number one, the sutra number 51, concludes by saying, all vrittis being restrained, after blocking even this knowledge, the seedless or nirbija samadhi is attained. So he places up here on top of all of them, the nirbija samadhi as the transcendent purusha one, nirbija equivalent nirvikalpa, and he simply says, in the moment when this last seed is eliminated, automatically the nirbija or nirvikalpa samadhi is attained, which is the point. After that, indeed, the goal has been attained. So he says, all vrit is being restrained after blocking even this knowledge, which means even this supreme knowledge is becoming unified, is becoming even. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, when he reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi, he says, alone the consciousness of my ego kept spinning for a while, like a broken wheel of a cogged machinery, 
and it kept like my eye, my ego kept saying I, 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 but even this, because of the other samskara stopping, even this eventually like a machinery that slows down and slows down and eventually it stops, even this eventually stops. So basically what Patanjali says, it takes time, it takes time to go from all the samprajnata samadhi forms to asamprajnata, and it takes time when you reach those to stop even this final knowledge and thus to stop everything to be ex- able to experience perfect peace. It will not stop like this one of a sudden. It will stop after a while. There is a process in which it's like shutting down a complex factory. You cannot shut it down with just one button in a second. You have to shut down different departments and different generators and different functions, and in a matter of minutes, you can shut down a whole factory or production site. It's the same with the mind and with all these things, the samskaras and all these, they take a while before they shut down, and that is why there is a graduation process. Even advanced yogis who do meditation, they feel sometimes that it takes them minutes, sometimes tens of minutes, before some of these mechanisms they shut down and they enter deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. You are going to say, what about Ramakrishna? That dude could enter in three seconds in Samadhi. Right, because he entered every day tens of times and because of this the mechanism had become almost instantaneous in his case because, as you know, the proverb says it clearly again. The master is made by practice. Practice makes the master. And therefore, because he had practiced it, he had become masterly at it. But else, there is in this process a certain technology, a certain step-by-step technology. With this, I have finished this description. Patanjali speaks about very high things. For some of you, if you have been attentive, they create the resonance just by hearing, speaking about these things. It's like transporting you and elevating you. There is a resonance. It's not a small thing to talk and think about such high things. Those of you who do not get the point, they usually look bored and they say, well, when will this be finished? I have to go and eat something. It's like, uh, this sounds very theoretical. The good news is that the next chapters, the next two chapters of the Yoga Sutra, are much more pragmatical, they come down to sadhana, practice, things to be obtained. But Patanjali chose to start his text on a very high level. The first chapter, he consecrated it to Samadhi. He has explained to you already what the frame of this game is. What's the story about the mind? What's the story about the impurities, uh, obstacles, movements of the mind? What is the story about stopping the vrittis? the movements of the mind, what is the story with the different degrees, and what he, what he intends to speak about. He intends to speak about how to reach Nirbija or Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and which are the steps of this fascinating process, which as you are going to see, of course, and you know from our yoga school, it starts no low, no higher than Yama and Niyama, the moral and the ethical behavior of day to day. Why talk about... Uh, uh, nirasmita samadhi 
when actually we are talking about the fact that if you can control your violence or not, if you can control your wickedness or not, if you can control your tendency to lie or not, and other such things. Therefore, uh, of course, this fascinating process starts very down to earth, but Patanjali has already drawn the frame of the picture that he is going to outline. He told us that he is going to give us the practicals of this. Next time when we meet, we are going to start with chapter number two, which is called Sadhana Pada. And uh, I'm reminding again, there is a letterbox back there, which is even marked uh, for its purpose. Any one of you wants to have some questions? I have not gathered many questions about this. It's not a must. I'm not saying that you should. Uh, you are flattering me for being so very clear then and saying everything that needed to be said. But if in case you feel that there is a subject for a collateral lecture or there is a subject for a question, put them there. In the moment when I accumulate questions enough, I will stop and make a session of questions and answers related to Yoga Sutra. I also must admit that the first chapter is pretty abstract and uh, the questions would be for most of you pretty intellectual and therefore indeed you have to absorb some of these things deeper. So with this we are concluding the subject for tonight, but not before making a five-minute meditation on Ajna Chakra to close down and to deepen these things, and after which we will stop and separate.